Welcome to The Golden Shadow. My name is Aaron Rogerson. And I'm Melissa Polizzi. Today we are exploring the archetype of the father or the great father or the spiritual father. You could throw many names at this concept, this realm, this idea. Um, last week we did the archetype of the mother and that was pretty fruitful, I thought, pretty fun. And so we thought this week it made sense to complement uh, that story with the other half, which mm. is of the great father. Yeah, this, it's kind of interesting as I feel that the father archetype is one that's quite prominent, but in a lot of the literature, it's really like the great mother that's talked about quite a bit. And I feel like the the archetype of the father tends to get disseminated down into sub archetypes more often than not like the cenix the king the son who or slash hero that's kind of becoming the father and as you dive a little bit deeper and try to figure out really where the great father sort of sits you've got to kind of scale back out and look at things on like this greater scale sometimes not quite as obvious as the mother at least Mm. in my opinion yeah, I mean, Eric Neumann wrote the book, The Great Mother. Yeah. He never wrote The Great Father. The Great Father. Yeah, no. Uh, that, that's part of it. I think also <laughs> um, the masculine energy of the world, mm-hmm. of the universe, I think is a little more uh, familiar. Sure. Uh, it's a little more explicit yeah. in culture universally because men have been sort of the explicit energy that has been dominated, mm-hmm. has been dominant, excuse me throughout most of our history, by which I mean the last few thousand years, definitely not all of human history, but recorded history. So I think it's I think it's true that we are more sort of engaged with the masculine archetype mm. regularly, at least we were in the past, and I think that's changed in the last several decades with the rise of the feminine yeah. and the interest in exploring what that means. Um, I think it's also true that men have sort of a, a more spread thin kind of manifestation in the world. The way that masculine energy appears is sort of more varied in some ways. Mm. Like men are supposed to be like less well-rounded than women. They sort of appear in the world in more uh, disparate ways, more spread out ways where you have men like at the very bottom of a sort of realm and men at the very top of a certain realm and you have men who are behaving in very extreme ways yeah. that women don't really behave like. Women are kind of more centered, more grounded. So that might be part of it too, is that the masculine archetype is sort of thinner, mm. wider, mm. grander than the feminine archetype, which is more centered and more implicit. So and more like breadth to the yeah. to the masculine and more depth to yeah, just a the thought, feminine. Just a thought. It's an interesting idea because the the great mother and the kind of feminine archetype tends to be associated as we talked about last week with the dark thonic, the deep, the, the earth principle, Mm -hmm. that of matter and the masculine principle is more of the realm of sky and spirit and wind and the heavens. So even with that imagery alone, you kind of get the expansiveness like father sky versus the the deep core of mother earth right right so there's kind of an upness to Mm, the father and kind of a downness to the mother Mm. there's the idea of light versus dark yeah there is air versus uh earth Mm. or spirit versus matter yeah in some sense um and this can get pretty metaphysical but i think if if you look at sort of the like Mm. most fundamental patterns of the universe you do kind of have a pattern that is sort of like pushing upward and creating and structuring Mm -hmm. there's also an energy that is sort of like keeping things grounded and sort of pulling back from the former energy getting out of control Mm. keeping a balance that's sort of like the yang and yin idea is like Mm -hmm. yang is sort of active it's sort of like going places and yin is like keeping it balanced and saying don't go too far and kind of bringing things back towards the center constantly. Mm. And so you can see how the, the idea of uh, the masculine energy is sort of rising. It's sort of expanding. Right. It's, it's vision. It's consciousness. Mm. It's yes. getting higher and higher in the air. But 
without the feminine to bring it back down to earth yeah. and keep it grounded and keep it sort of mm-hmm. balanced, it flies off into space and loses yeah. itself. Or it's that from which, like the feminine being the the kind of principle of matter or the depths or even like the dichotomy between like the unconscious versus the masculine conscious, um, the feminine principle is where all of the material comes from, which everything is born from, yet what shapes it, where, what is uh, kind of born from it, and then how does it take, uh, how does it animate, how does it come to life, how does it move, how does it expand? That's another way to kind of look at the dichotomy between the masculine and the feminine. So there's like the depths of the unconscious material, which is sort of feminine. It's like this unknowable, mysterious void, but from that um, is born, birth the the conscious attitude and that kind of represents also like the logos as we start to apply that principle to the masculine as well right yun had the dichotomy of the logos versus the arrows yeah which is not not the 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 way that the arrows is always used it's not the way that logos is always used yeah but i think it's a useful way to think about it of logos is sort of um rational uh objective mind abstracting mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. of the sort of more primal, more primordial human being mm. and sort of towards a higher place with greater vision, yeah. greater consciousness. You can understand how consciousness is sort of rising out of the body. Mm. It's kind of a recent development and evolution, only a few million years old probably um, or less, depending on how you think about it. But the idea that consciousness is sort of uh, being born from the body um And that's Logos, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of pushing towards greater order, greater structure, towards greater vision. It's pushing towards actually seeing the world as a place of objects that can be interacted with, manipulated, bended to your will. And Mm. you can can see that men sort of embody the kind of uh, more materialistic, more objective way of being where they're sort of bending nature to their will Mm. as opposed to kind of being more in tune with nature which is more of like a feminine principle. Yeah, this is also uh, bringing to mind like the thinking function versus the feeling function. Right, right, exactly. Episode, I don't know, three, check it out. But the thinking function is looking to abstract out of itself. It's looking for the harmony of concepts. It's looking towards like intellectual integrity and harmony versus the feeling function. That's looking at relationality. It's looking about at the kind of dynamics between subjectivity and does that feel good or does that feel bad and it's got more of that older primordial feel to it um so even that kind of brings a bit not to say purely feminine is going to be associated with the feeling function but on a Mm -hmm. on a higher level of just putting these things into categories you can Mm -hmm. kind of see how those principles are at play there within the cognitive functions right pattern is behind the patterns yes behind the patterns exactly so um a good way to explore these concepts like we did last episode i thought that was fun Mm -hmm. is through mythology Mm -hmm. and um we could start off with maybe some older myths yeah and move all the way to modern myths Mm -hmm. or pop culture yeah Okay, so in considering this episode, of course, what came to mind, and, you know, I come from a background of, of a lot of Greek mythology, uh, was the the kind of succession of, of these kings in the sky, Uranus, Kronos, and Zeus, um, as very dynamic, interesting archetypes of the father, both mm. because they represent, for the most part, a element of like father sky or the the spiritual father that exists in the heavens which you see in a lot of different cultures everything from um the great plains native americans to um to the greek here to mesopotamian mythology that there seems to be this sort of central god that we associate to the sky and it's got a masculine dynamic to it the only difference is or maybe there's multiple but the the most notable difference is um the egyptian sky god Hmm. newt who is female but um, I digress. Uh, Uranus is the primordial embodiment of uh, the sky, and he is one of the original deities that gives birth really to uh, the world as we know it, to 
the the line of succession that we see with all of the pantheon and that comes from mother earth or gaia and from uranus who's the sky and so you have that dynamic already beginning in the cosmology right so you have the god of the sky Mm -hmm. being born in some sense, rising from Gaia. Yes, yes. Right? There's kind of different versions that either it was ether or aether yeah. and Gaia, so kind of like spirit um, and and earth. But yeah. in, in I think most versions, it's that Uranus is born from Gaia. So there we go back to that principle of the feminine being, the, the vessel from mm-hmm. which everything is born. But right. out of that rises an ordering principle. Right, right. And even... Um, and there's so many layers to that because you can think of uh, just human development as when you're born and as you mature into an adult, it's like you are very much in your body when you're born and you slowly have consciousness rise out of you. You slowly gain the vision to actually understand reality and understand that like I exist, like I am and that sort of thing. It's like rising out of the body. Mm-hmm. Like Logos is sort of rising from mm-hmm. Eros, but Eros is sort of the, the primordial reservoir of energy mm, from yeah. which everything comes and like everything kind of returns. So there's this interesting sort of prophetic element to the Greek gods, the rulers that the, the ruling masculine is going to be overthrown by a child. And that begins with Uranus and whoever prophesizes it, I don't know, but basically children begin to get born and it's the titans and that's the the lineage of chronos and rhea and other titans and so because uranus fears being overthrown he traps all of the children in tartarus which is this kind of deep uh, abyss dungeon Mm -hmm. and they're all trapped there and eventually uh, gaia mother earth can't really take this happening any longer and so she um tasks one of the children, Kronos, where he's really the only one willing to do it, to take a, how do you say it? Scythe, a sickle, a Mm -hmm. uh, hooked (laughs) knife, a scythe. Thank you. So the scythe to not to kill Uranus, but uh, to dismember him, uh, to cut off his... (laughs) You can say it. He chops off his balls, right? (laughs) Isn't that how the story goes? That's... uh... I was trying to be like PG, <laughs> but that's 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 the story. That's, that's literally the story, guys. The I'm mythology. sorry, I can't keep a straight face. <laughs> we can we can we can laugh at it now, but it's it's an important under way to understand uh, yes. history and understand the human mind. In right. some sense, it's like why is the myth this? Right, he chops off his balls. Yeah, he chops off his balls, and it's like you can understand that that made sense. Well, also, how do you um, how do you weaken the masculine? How do you impair him in a way that is you you cannot return from? Especially because that's the vessel through which he uh, produces children. Well, it's not his, you know, penis, but it's 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 it's, that's the core of his uh, creative energy, really. No, I mean we don't we don't need to get too much into this, but I do think it's interesting. We are we are discussing the archetype of the father, so we're talking about men. But to chop off the penis is like the same as like almost like chopping off like the arm or like Mm. the sword or the spear. It's like this thing that like pokes. It's this thing that goes into things, and that's kind of like a very masculine thing. It's like the phallus is like something that goes into things or pokes through or stabs. Um, Whereas like the uh, the Jonas, as it phrased the the uh, the analogous word for vagina. Oh, yoni. Yoni. Mm -hmm. Yonic. It's like the adjective, right? Mm-hmm. That's something that has things go into it where it yeah. receives or right, it opens right. up and it becomes, it becomes a vessel in that sense. Yes. So chopping off the penis is kind of chopping off this power. Whereas yes. like chopping off the balls is like, it's the seed. Yeah, it's the it's, seed. It's, it's where um, a lot of the spiritual energy is being mm. uh, kept. Yeah. Um, and it's very powerful with spiritual energy. It's not quite what stabs. It's not quite what like chops and kills, but it's sort of like, um, kind of like the man's, power in some sense yeah. his ability to continue his line mm-hmm. so you can understand how uh, mm-hmm. the ball is as, as vulgar as it seems like you can understand especially in the past where they were probably much less squeamish about genitalia honestly yeah. 
especially if everyone's like walking around naked. Um, mm-hmm. But the ball was might have been more of a symbol of this, of like the man's seed. Well, yeah, yeah. The torch that he passes That's like true. down the line. Yeah. Yeah. So Uranus is uh, trapped in Tartarus after this. The Titans are freed. Um, there's all this other interesting mythology. Maybe we'll get into it one day but from you know the um the wounding aphrodite is like born um from like the foam as his as his balls hit the ocean it's so crazy and then from the blood that sprays forth from the heavens the furies are born so even through the violation Mm -hmm. life is still born yet at that point uranus kind of takes that step back he is trapped within tartarus and then chronos takes over who's the god of the harvest he rules over the golden age of greece and partly rome as well and Mm. He doesn't have as much of that sky element, but he kind of brings in that masculine principle of of um, structure mm. and maintaining order, kind of being that principle of the harvest and so of the cycles of time and how that kind of brings a type of structuring to the earth. And it, and it represents then this like golden age of prosperity and groundedness in the culture. But there's that same prophecy at play. Once again, you are going to be overthrown by one of your children. So each time a child is born, he eats them, he swallows them whole. And Mm. when Zeus is born, um, his mother gives Kronos a stone instead, and they hide Zeus. And eventually Zeus grows up and... um, is able to overthrow Kronos, not by chopping his balls off, but by giving him this kind of concoction to make him regurgitate all of the Olympians. And then there's a huge Mm. war and eventually the Olympians win and they kind of ascend onto Mount Olympus. And of course, Zeus is back to that principle of the sky of the, of the heavenly father. Um, You start to get into some of those principles, more of like wind and lightning, very like masculine kind of spirit elements that are coming into play. And I think just the three of these gods are interesting because it's showing the complexity of the father archetype, both that they bring structure, that they bring authority, that they bring prosperity, that they uh, bring order to chaos. But Mm. also there's the element of like the devouring father or the tyrannical father um, in that each of these fathers wants to destroy their children because they fear the younger consciousness kind of coming up. And so there's that sense of the established mature attitude, the dominant superior attitude, fearing what is coming that they do not understand and that that desire to suppress it. Right. You can see the, uh, there are also um, these myths are exploring sort of the archetypal pattern of society or perhaps the tribe in the sense that the younger generation has to come into their own mm-hmm. and they need to sort of take over in some sense. And the, I feel like this is, this is a bit of a universal myth. I feel like this happens in other cultures, but the idea of um, sort of the heroic figure having to um, b- rebuild the world mm-hmm. from a monster's bones or his father's bones. In the sense, if Kronos um, is cutting off Uranus's balls um, with the scythe, and he's also the god of the, god of the harvest. He's like harvesting the balls, yes. almost, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, but he has to sort of come into his own he has to he has to take on his adulthood and he has to in some sense rebuild the world from the death of the old generation Mm, mm -hmm. that's like the like recurring experience for young people is they're always sort of having to inherit a broken world that is become overly structured or tyrannical yeah or is holding on too hard to the past and they need to, in some sense, overthrow it. That yeah. doesn't necessarily mean like literal revolution, but it means like you need to sort of take on the mantle of um, uh, overthrowing the, the last generation and building a new world for your generation. And you could see how that would have played out even like at the tribal level of like the new generation. And I would say especially for young men, I think this is more of a kind of a masculine pattern. It's like the young men are sort of the... Um, the structure, the order of the tribe, they're the power hierarchy of the tribe. And that hierarchy needs to change mm, occasionally. Mm-hmm. And that can be violent or it could be sort of like, uh, 
some sort of ritualized yeah. exchange that happens, but the need for the young man to become a hero and rise up and overthrow the old generation to build a new world for him and his his partners, his generation. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to touch back on that idea a little bit mm-hmm. um, when we get to some fairy tales, but mm-hmm. there are some interesting other aspects in Greek mythology that I think showcase some dynamics of the father archetype. Yeah. Looking at Odysseus versus Agamemnon as two different principles of developing masculinity that are sort of stepping into kingship and maturity and having two very different roads towards that. So people are very familiar with Odysseus, of course. And Mm. I think despite him always having been a king in his stories, that really as the Battle of Troy began, he was very uninitiated. And he goes through this long ordeal and eventually begins his return back to Ithaca and Mm -hmm. is delayed for an incredible amount of time and has to go through all of these trials, which one can see as this kind of path of individuation of the facing of different unconscious material that eventually leads him to a space of integration and maturation that he can come back home, be reunited with the feminine principle and take his place as rightful King. Mm -hmm. So you see that really Odysseus is a, a development of the masculine into the father archetype in a way that is a little bit more balanced that he comes back home and he kind of removes all the suitors. He right. he brings order back to that extremely chaotic place where mm-hmm. his son and his wife are. And although he's got a lot of trials and tribulations to get there, ultimately things don't end in too much, uh, I don't know, destruction for him personally, although he basically loses like his entire uh army of individuals yeah um, yeah but he's he is portrayed as sort of like the wise king yeah and his his journey is is difficult and he fails in all these ways but ultimately he's like depicted as as being a man of wisdom the wise king the one who is virtuous mm-hmm. um i think even in the, the movie troy <laughs> um he's portrayed by sean bean and yeah. he is portrayed as being sort of like the wise balanced one who uh um, isn't bloodthirsty and he's he's patient he sort of counsels achilles and whereas um the next person that you're going to get to which i think is agamemnon mm-hmm. is portrayed by more of kind of like this like uh sort of fat like meat-headed uh <laughs> king who like is very bloodthirsty and like is not yeah. making very decisions and yes. is actually sort of getting in arguments with odysseus about how to move forward with the war well, yeah, as as the war begins and everyone's ex- feeling extremely bloodthirsty, like Helen has been stolen, it's time to rise up. Um, all the different factions of Greece are coming together to kind of rally underneath um, her retrieval. And Agamemnon is feeling that bloodlust. He's like in that warrior king space, but he's yeah. also, I think, tapping into the dark masculine, into the dark father, because that need for that power, that need to keep order is uh, in some ways twisting him to lose his moral compass. And the way the myth goes is that they can't sail out and head to Troy yet because the winds aren't in their favor. And there's all these different versions of why Mm. Agamemnon might have killed um, like some deer of Artemis's that he shouldn't have or, Mm. you know, disrespected the gods in some ways or they just weren't in favor of the weather and the way that they are told that they could get the weather uh, changing with the mm. wind moving is if Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter mm. and there's this huge kind of internal struggle with him, um, with the other people around, but ultimately that desire for blood, that desire for power, that desire for victory overrides his relationship to his daughter to the feminine principle, or you might even see, like, say that the anima inside of himself, and mm. so he squashes that. He he kills that. He sacrifices the feminine, and eventually they get the wind. They go off to war. You know the Greeks do win, but 
much later, Agamemnon is killed by his wife because of the death of the daughter. Mm. So you see it leads to this ultimate destruction where he couldn't keep the balance. He couldn't maintain the father-daughter relationship. His desire to get to war, to have possibly disrespected the gods, ultimately speaks to the failed father archetype. Mm. Stannis. Game of Thrones. Oh, yes. Actually, that's very good. Stannis is like, I am Cain. I am meant to be Cain. It is prophesized, and it's also my right. Right. Um, yes. He's a good example yes. of the yeah. the consciousness, the male, male consciousness uh, becoming untethered. Yes. Um, and he's probably egged on by sort of like a dark feminine character, yeah. which is... Yeah, uh, Melisandre. Melisandre, which is, which is interesting. But, okay, um, but spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> In case you haven't watched Game of Thrones, uh, spoiler alert. Um, but this is an important part of Stance's arc is that he is trying to make it to Winterfell. Um, he wants to become king. Mm-hmm. He believes that he, he, this is his, this is his destiny yeah. and he gets held up by weather. There's bad weather. His army is stuck in the snow Yeah, and he burns his daughter to <laughs> yeah, death in order to queer the weather, Yeah, which is the wow. same story as Agamemnon. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally didn't put those two things together. Right. And so the weather clears up and Stannis can continue with his right. war, but he gets slaughtered yeah. after that. Yeah. And it's like, was it worth it? Yeah, exactly. Was it worth it? Yeah. And those moments of realizing that failure of 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 your ability to maintain that kind of uh, that morality to have stayed grounded is what teaches us ultimately about the complexities of the archetypes that even at that level of maturity and accomplishment, the mother and the father are both going to fail at times. And Mm -hmm. what does that teach us about our own capabilities, our own potentialities that we might be gripped by the kind of dark pole of the, of the archetype and seek blood Mm -hmm. or seek destruction Okay, so a couple more uh, stories. So King Arthur, I think, is another uh, myth that came to mind as that principle of the father that really comes in, brings that structure, allows um, an element of balanced authority and governance and stability to really come from him as that core principle, but then to spread outward, to expand and to then raise other individuals up into that principle of order so that all thrive and all succeed. Hmm. Having a strong king at the helm makes the entire kingdom strong. And in the case of King Arthur, um, his father, Uther Pendragon, dies and Arthur is uh, taken away. No one knows that he's the son of Uther. And so for some 15, 16 odd years, basically the land is in upheaval. All these petty kings are vying for power. There is no line of succession. And eventually Merlin sets up, you know, some sort of trickery as he does. And young Arthur comes upon the sword in the stone and pulls it. And this is supposed to show who is the rightful king. And so this seemingly unroyal child uh, pulls the sword from the stone and Arthur then has to live up to this uh, title, into this uh, responsibility. He has to learn how to lead an army. He has to fight the petty kings, but eventually he does. He proves himself. This is showing like the young hero, the young masculine consciousness moving into the mature father archetype, and he takes power. He brings order to the land. All that was uh, destructive before is now brought to a place of peace and prosperity, and Arthur is really one of the most famous kings in this mythology because he carries such a dynamic energy, I think, of the father archetype. He establishes the the round table. You know, he has these group of, of valiant, courageous knights who kind of work as moral authority as mm-hmm. well. And he brings that structure and that order to uh, England, France, Wales, general area. Mm -hmm. And he also is connected to Percival and the Holy Grail myth as well. And that kind of brings a spiritual redemption to the land. So you have a really dynamic masculine principle at play. And I like also the sword as a symbol, as a really powerful masculine symbol of discernment and power and the logos and the thinking function. And that's 
the principle that drives forward his kingship. That's the symbol. Him being able to wield the sword is what allows him to ascend into the father archetype. Right, right. Arthur as a hero, it's definitely a hero story, but it's very, um, it goes beyond just the hero's journey, which I think is interesting. It's such such a rich um, sort of complex myth because he does not only uh, go from the boy draws the sword and ascends to the cane and that's mm-hmm. kind of like that's like the hero story but he also sort of has this this whole mythology of being cane yes yeah there's and, many more and stories bringing after. order to the land and he is um virtuous he's wise he's fair uh the round table is uh, a sim- symbol of completion mm-hmm. of balance yeah of things being centered and grounded yeah um and sort of uh, his his holy quest um uh, the Holy Grail story. Does he find the Holy Grail? Is that no. part part of the myth? Not not Arthur. Percival does, but Percival is driven to leave his home because he wants to become a knight, hmm. and he wants to go to Arthur's court, and that's what sets him upon the the journey to eventually uh, find the Holy Grail and to redeem uh, the kind of broken kingdom. Hmm. And he so he's very much tied to the principle of King Arthur, and it's through the desire to join King Arthur's court, to be a knight, to, to join the round table, that Percival becomes the grail hero. Mm. Yeah, the sword again, um, just to tie it back to to uh, the phallus, is an important symbol. Mm-hmm. Again, the yeah. idea of the, the, the phallus is a thing that, that goes in and strikes and stabs, and that being the symbol of masculine power yeah. is very prominent in our myths. And King Arthur probably has like, yeah, the most prominent sword myth Several, yeah, Excalibur and the Sword in the Stone. Uh, It's like it doesn't really get any more uh, classic and archetypal than those swords. So to just quickly go back to that theme of the the kind of older masculine ushering in the younger consciousness, the younger heroes, you see this a lot in fairy tale motifs. Like something like 50 to 60 tales in the Grimm's Brother fairy tales starts with there was a king and his three sons and dot, 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 you know, something's going on here. So it's this really common motif that speaks to the ailing king or the sick king that is ready for the younger generation to come forward, uh, the new attitude really to take hold a um, regeneration in consciousness. And it's through the principle often of the father or the king that that journey unfolds. So there is one um, fairy tale in particular, The Three Feathers, that starts out this way. Mm. There is an older king. He has three sons. Two are strong and courageous. One is kind of dumb. That's another fairy tale motif. You have like the dumbling son Mm. who no one thinks is going to like win out and become the king, but, you know. He does does. Um, because the dumbling represents a a more unconscious version attribute, some sort of function of consciousness that is coming into, uh, into light, into reality, but it's still connected to a very instinctual primordial dynamic Mm -hmm. that it doesn't do everything the way that's expected. It does things differently. Okay. So it's the fool. Yeah. It's the fool. Exactly. Right, latent power, mm-hmm. sort of an emptiness that allows for something to be born inside, as opposed to kind of a uh, active fullness or active consciousness, which refuses um, to uh, entertain any contradiction. Yeah, it's right? rigid. So the, the ego, the ego can be very closed off yes. to changing yes. its mind or letting in any new information. And yeah. the dumbling is someone who is like lacking an ego basically exactly. yes yeah because it hasn't been integrated into ego consciousness which doesn't bring that sense of i know everything right. i know how this works i know how to do it and i'm not going to question it and the king with three sons uh in some sense it's a uh, kind of exploring the, the the process of individuation or possibly yes. process of growth yes where the king is sort of the status quo consciousness yes. Yes. Uh, where you are right now, your, your whatever place of stability you've reached, and the three sons represent like the new you that's waiting yes. to come out, mm-hmm. and this need for like the same way that the generations kind of rotate, and like a new generation comes in, and now a new generation comes in, and the old generation sort of withers and dies. And yes. It's, um, reflecting um, the individual who the old you withers and dies, and the new you 
comes into being on top of the the old self and for that to happen there needs to be some foolishness mm-hmm. there needs to be uh, an openness to yeah. um all this new information that's coming into you there needs to be sort of a journey into the unconscious in order to re-emerge back into a higher consciousness yeah from a psychological perspective we see the king and the sons as part of an individual's psychic dynamics as Mm -hmm. different parts of them that are at play so that old kind of superior attitude is ready to be put to rest Mm -hmm. and now it's time for something else to emerge so kind of similar to uh, baba yaga who we talked about last week as kind of putting forth these challenges and trials for the the maiden to move through to kind of gain some new insight. The king in these fairy tales works really similarly. And if you're to become my heir, if you're going to take over, you need to complete these tasks. So with this fairy tale, the first thing that happens, which is really interesting, is that he casts out three feathers and they all fall into different areas. And that begins the story And the symbol of the feather kind of brings us back to that element of air, to uh, to the the image of a bird, to the sky, to the heavens. So we're playing again with that kind of masculine symbol, um, that symbol of spirit as opposed to matter. Mm. And the as the tasks unfold, the dumbling continues to be the one that actually succeeds. And because he is the fool, because he is willing to do what is not expected. Uh, that eventually he gets the crown, he's ruling in wisdom for a long time, but it's through those trials, you might say, or through the guidance of the king that the younger consciousness is allowed to come into being, that it's allowed to rise higher into conscious being and to really take hold. Um, You also see in this fairy tale that the dumbling works with a lot of feminine principled elements with a toad with the princess or that he's trying to win over and so the dumbling's willing to interact with the feminine and bring in that sense of union um which really brings more of that sense of wholeness between the masculine and the feminine okay how about yahweh mm. God, yeah, the father, god the father or the one god the monotheistic god in some sense, but mostly the God of Christianity mm-hmm. is what we're focusing on. Yeah. Um, so we, we've touched upon this in a few previous episodes. We did an episode called God that wasn't just about the one God, but was kind of about um, uh, theism in general, I guess you would say, or deities. Um, but God the Father is sort of the masculine principle abstracted upward into a personified being um, who is uh, the God of light in some sense. I mean, the Genesis starts with, um, you know, the void, mm-hmm. uh, the darkness. And it's like almost like it's like dark waters, I think. Um, it's that like primordial feminine. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And then God says, let there be light. And so he says, let there be vision, let there be consciousness. Um, God is also in the garden with Adam and Eve. Um, and he is sort of watching over them as Adam and Eve become conscious. They, uh, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and this sort of represents, uh, kind of, uh, the consciousness emerging in humans and the sort of, uh, complexity and challenge that, that comes from this, that, that God is witnessing, um, and so there, there is this sense of like human consciousness, but beyond that, there is actually like a more meta, more sort of behind the patterns, like the patterns behind the patterns. Um, the, the masculine principle is behind human consciousness, which is still sort of this rising upward into the sky. Mm-hmm. There is still this notion of God, the father being in the sky of being in heaven. He's like behind the clouds. There's some perception that like, rays of sunshine come down and like hit the earth and like that's god he's coming from up for Mm -hmm. some reason yeah whereas like satan is coming from down yeah in a weird way i think specifically with like the old testament god that you see a real picture of wholeness of the archetype Mm -hmm. he's extremely ambivalent 
He's going to be very loving, but he's also going to be quite destructive. Um, he has a sense of like benevolence towards mankind, but he's also got a destructive energy towards mankind. And well, he's he's judging yes, and punishing. Yes, right. He's not yeah. he's not just destroying things. No, for, no, not um, just like fireballs for no reason. Yeah. But you have like the idea behind like the Tower of Babel as an example, yeah. where it's like you climb higher and higher, trying to grasp towards. Uh, the heavens and what happens you know mm -hmm. like eventually god will strike you down yeah. and there is a principle behind that the judgment is not for no reason it's not just destruction for the sake of destruction or terror for the sake of of terror but rather that the principle of masculinity in the father at times brings a an authoritative hand mm -hmm. that instills moral authority into an environment right. or that kind of guides you towards what is quote unquote right. Mm -hmm. And, and that needs to kind of come from a, a stronger hand at times. Right. So God, God, the father is the God of love. Mm -hmm. He's also the God of judgment. Yeah. And yeah. both of those are really important. And we can see that sort of pointing out with the sort of father stereotype in a more literal way, where when we think of like the family life, it's like the father is the one <laughs> who hopefully loves you unconditionally, mm. like really loves you. But the way that he shows his love is by providing structure and order and judging you yeah. and saying, you can do better than that. Mm. Or like you're misbehaving and you're going to get like a whipping now or, um, uh, you know, providing sort of a path for you to walk, which is like, this is how you become an adult. This is how you grow up. I'm going to show you how to do that. Uh, there's all this sort of the energy of like, um, the feminine is sort of like, the first energy that the baby comes in contact with it emerges from the feminine, but also the, the mother is the one who holds the baby mm, and feeds I think the baby, feeds the baby. And yeah. just like evolutionarily, the child would have spent like its early years, like with the mother, like almost entirely. And then the father might come over, come around when the child gets like old enough to walk. Mm. And it's like, okay, now you come with me. The masculine takes from the feminine and says, it is time to rise into consciousness. I'm going to actually take you out and teach you things and show you how to grow strong. So there's this, again, this sort of moving from the sort of primordial feminine energy to like the higher consciousness that the, the, the literal father plays a role in that. Yeah. Um, and so you can see that in God, the father as well mm -hmm. is, uh, the new Testament God is a little more about love and yeah. people kind of gravitate more towards that. I think nowadays, which is like, God is love. It's like, that's what religion is for me. Like I just mm. want to feel love. Yeah. But it's like, okay, but you're ignoring an important part of reality, which is like, yes. you actually get punished for not, um, uh, acting in a sort of balanced, good way. Like nature punishes you. There are, th there are things that you can do that you're going to have to pay for, that you're going to be, um, punished for. And that can't be ignored reality does judge you yes if you drive around without a seatbelt reality is judging you in some sense it's like you're going to be punished for that how it's like when you get in a car accident you're going to die and it's almost as if reality punished you for not wearing a seatbelt so there's that kind of judgment law structure you need to follow the rules that is is part of the father archetype we recognize also in that that if we ignore, as you said, these other elements that are at play within the archetypal structures of our environment, in our lives, in our own psyche, that we will pay for it, or the darkness will be constellated, the shadow will emerge, or mm -hmm. um, reality will have its due if we ignore. So that like over-identification with light and love and all things good mm -hmm. is a natural uh, suppression of all that is um, immoral or wrong or mm. shadowy, yeah. things that we don't want to deal with, uh, ways in which we um, kind of keep ourselves in a space of self-denial. Mm -hmm. And it's important to recognize the the depths of both sides of the poles of the archetype. Yeah. And I like the sort of Old Testament God because he carries more of that sense of wholeness within mm -hmm. him. Um he reminds us really what will happen if we don't stay on top of our own judgments. Mm -hmm. If we don't kind of listen to the word of God, which is not meant to necessarily 
I don't know, define life to a T, but rather to give us a kind of guiding principle. And that's what the, the, the father does. He provides guiding principles that bring structure and authority that bring order where there would be chaos. And that really is uh, expressed very deeply in that Old Testament, God the Father. Right. And um, just to touch upon Christ a little bit. So God is the Father and Christ mm-hmm. is the Son. Yeah. And that's sort of part of the Trinity in addition to the to the Holy Spirit. Um, so there is the Father archetype that, again, is, has this sort of interesting pulling into consciousness. So God the Father gives Christ the world. Christ is the embodiment of consciousness. He's mm-hmm. the Logos, again, yeah. going back to the, the beginning of this conversation, you like Logos versus Eros. Eros is kind of like the primordial sort of um, pulling back sort of dark uh, feminine energy. Logos is this sort of pushing forward, rising, um, ascending. It's like the vision. Um, and uh, for Christ, Logos, well, I mean, without Christ, Logos just means word mm. um, or the word in Christ is thought of. The word and the language Again, his language is very tied up with consciousness. Language is very much how we like make sense of our reality, how we bring order to things. You and I are having a conversation right now, and we're exchanging words. And what are we doing? It's like we're actually taking a sort of chaotic idea, and we're bringing structure and order to it through sure. our words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Christ, in some sense, is the embodiment of the word, and he's the son. Um, so there is this sort of returning of the father becomes the son, becomes mm-hmm. the father, becomes the son, and you can see that with uh, Kronos and Uranus, but also with Christ and God. It's yeah. like God is Christ and Christ is God in some sense. Christ is God incarnate. And so you see this sort of pattern of the Father brings consciousness into the Son. The Son speaks the truth. The Son mm-hmm. embodies the Logos. And the Son eventually becomes the Father. Mm. And the pattern repeats itself. Yeah. you God is only truly known by becoming incarnated through humanity through the mm. sun so you have this like inextricable link to the principle of the father flowing through the hero consciousness yeah. which i think is i don't know because like i said in the beginning of the episode a lot of these stories you you really often do see the kind of king and the son or the, the kind of older more masculine and the younger masculine like very very tied together mm-hmm. or even within an individual the becoming of so there's really that sense that to be truly known there needs to be a principle of of the vessel of consciousness coming through yeah. uh, because the father exists in spirit. Like he's, he's sort of, I don't know, immaterial in a way. Right. And, and it's different than the feminine, which is so deeply rooted mm-hmm. in the earth principle. So uh, a dynamic between father and son is something you really do see woven through all these stories. Right, right. And this speaks to Christ as being God incarnate. Yeah. It speaks to, again, is the, the, the father archetype is something that is beyond human. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's part of the universe. It's sort of like this metaphysical property that we see. It's like the yang, again, versus the yin. Hmm. There's all these ways you can kind of think about it. But like Christ as consciousness is the word. Um, humanity manifests consciousness, but it's actually just a sort of manifestation of something that is deeper, mm-hmm. which is like the father archetype yeah. that's in the background that everything is sort of circumambulating. Uh, everything is sort of like drawing upon that father energy and manifesting literally in reality as consciousness. Mm. Okay. So maybe we can dive into a couple of more modern pop culture examples. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one that came to mind for me was Mufasa. Yeah. As like really powerful father archetype. And there's that dynamic connection there with, with the son, of course, with Simba. Yeah. But you really do see the principle of like the good father mm-hmm. in Mufasa. Powerful, strong, yeah. present, guiding. The land is prosperous. Everyone is flourishing. Yeah. And when he dies, of course, spoiler alert. <laughs> I said spoiler alert. Mufasa dies, yes. That's mostly a joke. Everyone has to know that, right? Spoiler alert. Anyways, you know, when when Scar takes over, the more like dark father, you might say, the world is slowly falling apart. Mm -hmm. Darkness reigns and hyenas are running everywhere. But that principle of, of the father instilling also in the son the potentialities for him to rise up and come into power 
is where the redemption really comes from with Simba. He has to recall who he was. He has to recall his father and step back into that element for him to mature enough and take back his kingdom. Right. So there's, there's this triad again that I think is really interesting of like the three masculine, um, the probably the three like core mm. like masculine principles or manifestations mm-hmm. of the father archetype, which is like the sun, yeah, which is yeah. Simba and mm-hmm. like Christ or Logos right. or consciousness in some sense. And then Mufasa as the father, which is sort of like higher order in structure, the thing that brings consciousness um, or brings the, the being into consciousness. He's bringing Simba into consciousness by teaching him about the land. Yeah, yeah. Someday you will be king. Someday yeah. that you will ascend to where I am and you will have all this responsibility and you'll have to run around and like protect the zebras and like that's <laughs> your, that's your role. Um, and everyone flourishes when that, when, when the good father is in power, he's competent. People love him. Mm-hmm. He's not ruling with an iron fist. Right. He's like, has this great responsibility and he does not abuse it. Yeah. And then you have the third part of the triad, which is like the dark father mm. or the terrible father yeah. or the villain. Yeah, the tyrannical king. Right. So the notion that, um, the good father, sort of the leader of the tribe in some sense, the, the patriarch has ascended to where he is because he's competent and good and wise mm. and he's been voted there. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the dark father is, is in some sense an authority figure who mm. doesn't belong there where it's like he's trying to cr- climb to the top. He's trying to be king. Scar wants to be king, but yeah. he hasn't earned it. Yeah. And yeah. how does he get there? He gets there through murder. Yeah. And not only mur- he murders his own brother. Yeah. And that's how he ascends to the throne. Right. And we instinctually, we don't like that. Yeah. It's, it's like a very, ma- it's a charge. very masculine story, right? Between right. the brothers. Right. Right. Yeah. And so the, there's also a Cain and Abel, right? It's yes. like, like the, yeah. the dark yes. brother kills right. the, the brother the, of, the good of brother. light, the good brother. Yeah. Um, and it's up to the sun to kind of, uh, uh, bring things back to order. And that's this, that's the story of Simba. But he he really comes back because of the feminine principle and i like that right. because that shows like the balance of like the quaternity he's, that you have like the dynamic that tail. <laughs> you have the dynamic of like the the three masculine figures but often especially from like the jungian perspective you know we want to look for like okay three like a king and two sons where's the wife or mm-hmm. where is like the 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 bride and the same thing here we have the two brothers and the son we need that balance of the feminine principle and it's through her that he does feel driven enough to come back to remember who he is that's that's his spirit that's his that's his soul that's the anima right so the young man can only make it so far into consciousness um he needs the feminine in order to to achieve true consciousness to really really get that higher principle and it's about a kind of a balance thing. Even if you think of the uh, the sort of consciousness is sort of ascending out of you, mm. the feminine principle is what is sort of descending in some sense. It Grounding keeps it grounded, yeah. right? And without it, the logos, for instance, ungrounded, flies off into space. Mm. It loses its grounding and then it, it just goes in these weird directions it won't listen to anyone anymore yeah, it just yeah. keeps on going higher and well, higher and he's higher. like a puer right. you know in that middle phase with right. like simone wait, wait timon and pumba is just like hanging out eating just yeah. like being a lazy bum he's yeah. just stuck in puer right. and um and he doesn't want to grow up right so the, the descending feminine has to come about and that's mm-hmm. again ties into this synthesizing all these ideas but like you have like the hero's journey which is like the journey into the darkness or into the unknown or Mm. into the feminine in order to rise back up into a higher consciousness a new consciousness a new order that you weren't before and so simba needs nala to come around he's a puer he needs her to come so he descends into the feminine yeah and rises again sort of a higher consciousness Mm. as a man yeah that's i mean you can see that again literally in real life it's like men who do not have uh if they're not in touch with their feminine side or they're not interacting with women at all mm. it's like they're going to go in weird directions yeah. they're going to become untethered and they're going to become destructive possibly well, you see lost. that with like like a lot of the hyper internet culture yeah. with which we consider very masculine yeah. of imbalanced like incel individuals they've lost touch they have animosity yeah. towards the feminine there's a complete disconnection with that principle and or it's just every interaction is negative 
And so you see how those principles, whether that's on a very grounded material, uh, kind of like relational level, but even yeah. on a deeper psychological level, we still need to be in touch with and cultivating and integrate the masculine and the feminine within ourselves. Let's talk about Gandalf and Saruman. I think it's a sort of an interesting one. Yeah. So yeah. Lord of the Rings. Um, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> I don't think I need to keep saying that. Uh, but Gandalf is sort of, uh, you know, wise old man, the wanderer, mm. the wizard. Yeah. Um, he represents uh, very much the sort of the ascended masculine, the good masculine. Mm-hmm. He's bringing Bilbo and Frodo into consciousness. Yes. He's um, giving them the call to come on the journey. Mm-hmm. He even kind of forces Bilbo to come. Well, actually, he forces Frodo too. Both he of them. He doesn't give either of them a choice. Yeah, Bilbo and kind of has a choice, but like he essentially just like brings the dwarves to him. He's like, "You're coming with us on this adventure," and he's like, "I don't want to go." And it's essentially like, "Too bad." Yeah. And Frodo is just giving the rain, but still, Gandalf is sort of the father figure who brings yes. the sons into consciousness. Yeah, he's also virtuous. He's powerful. He's strong. Yeah, um, he's uh, he's competent. Mm. He's not abusing his power. He wants what's good for Middle Earth. He feels a deep responsibility for Middle Earth, but he also sort of lives in balance with Middle yeah. Earth, and he mm. understands his role. And he's willing to sacrifice himself to like fight the Balrog, for instance. Mm-hmm. He dies yeah. protecting the Fellowship, yeah. which is strange because he's like a god, yeah. and he's like protecting these humans essentially. Yeah. Um, but that's what God does, right? Yeah. He created humanity and in some ways they are a part of him. Mm-hmm. And so he's watching over, you know, their development, their their trajectory. There's some telos for where this is all going and yeah. why. It's not just, you know, eh, here are some people and eh, who cares? Anyways, mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to my, my game. It's like, no, there's a deep connection between that principle of divinity yeah. and humanity so that you see it playing out even in Lord of the Rings. Right. And Saruman, I don't think this is really explored that much in the movie, but my understanding is that Saruman is sort of a, a figure of order in Middle Earth. He is the uh, the prime wizard or mm. the, the sort of the, the head of the order yeah. of, I can't remember what the word is used for the wizards in Middle Earth, but he's not exactly evil at first no he's sort of a luciferian figure where it's like his consciousness corrupts him Mm. he becomes so obsessed and focused on bringing order and law to middle earth and sort of purifying it Mm. um yeah like he thinks that radagast for instance radagast the brown he thinks that radagast is a fool yeah and sort of like this stupid wizard who's like one with the forest and like he's kind of like this hippie basically <laughs> and you can see that right it's like in like Saruman is kind of like the guy like in like the suit who's like oh those fucking hippies like yeah. he's like thinks that there's a right way yeah. to be a wizard in Middle Earth right. and it actually drives him to corruption yes. he wants to protect and purify Middle Earth so badly that he actually does the opposite somehow mm-hmm. and he like becomes the, destructive yeah right and that's sort of the weird paradox of consciousness yeah. it's like you might get so obsessed over what's real and what's yeah. true that you lose sight of what's actually true and real mm. and what's actually important. And it's the same story with, with Lucifer, yeah. the fallen angel. Right. So there is a corruption of the masculine in this case. And ultimately it is Gandalf who has more of a balanced approach, who also has uh, a deeper connection and cultivation of the relationship to the younger masculine, but also to the feminine principles as well. Mm-hmm. That allows for them to, I don't know. I mean, Saruman doesn't actually die, but they do ultimately defeat him in some fashion. Yeah. Uh, I just had an interesting insight. Saruman is the white, right? Yes. It's like purity, yes. light. Yeah. It's very much like consciousness. Yeah. And Gandalf's the gray. Uh, okay, right? okay. He's the mix. Right, right. He's the mix of black and white. Right. He's the one who's... Uh, balance between consciousness and unconscious yes. he's like the shaman figure yes, yes he's even traveling around <laughs> with magic like the shaman figure but so that uh, who knows if uh tolkien intended this I'm, I'm sure he did because he was such a genius well with, uh, mythology you know some might say that it's the principles of us drawing up these archetypal themes and motifs from mm-hmm. the collective unconscious which yeah. is to say we have like these inherited uh ordering structuring principles that make it so we have stories and mythologies that mirror each other. And it's like, well, 
did they purposely come up with that? Yeah. Are they messing with this idea of like black and white and how they blend together? It's like right. in some ways it's just so inherent. It's just primordial right. to your right. psychic being that it's going to be expressed. Right. And just like just like ancient mythology. Yes. Greek mythology. Yes. It's like were they consciously like talking about it and being right. like so this God is going to represent consciousness. Right. We all know what consciousness yeah. is. And that's my intention here. It's like, no, they're just dramatizing. Yeah. They're just acting it out the way that sort of like the early humans would have acted out all this culture and ritual yes. and all these concepts. And they would develop all these deities. Right. And if you could go back in time and ask them, why did you design the deity this way? Mm. It's like, they wouldn't know how to answer right. you. Cause it was like, like irrational, right? Like we're, I'm not sitting here and thinking about yeah. it and saying like, and this is exactly why this makes sense. Right, right. It's just spontaneous. Yeah. It's flowing from the unconscious. Mm -hmm. And I think you see that with Gandalf. Okay. Maybe we've got time for a couple more. Sure. Game of Thrones. Maybe we'll return back to that. Ned Stark, Tywin Lannister. We're doing a lot of these like dual fathers. So I you know. I, th I think it's an interesting, um, well, the contrasting is helpful. The yeah. Kind of the dialectic of two different things helps <laughs> you sort of synthesize an idea out of it. Yeah. But um, it's also, this is this is just how a lot of these stories are, mm. is there's this sort of light and dark thing going on. And it, it is a little more complex with, I think, like Ned Stark and Tywin Lannister. Like, because Tywin, I, I, I really think Tywin is a complicated character. Yes. I don't think it's just, it's you could just simply just say, oh, he's a villain. It's like, well. No, definitely not. He's protecting his family. Yeah. Um, He's you know, kind of ruthless and yeah. tyrannical yeah. and he does some pretty messed up things, mm -hmm. but ultimately he's just trying to protect the family mm -hmm. and he cares about his children. Um, but he is very much sort of the, the terrible father mm. in some sense. He's not doing, he's not like abusive. He's not drinking like crazy and then like beating his children, but he is sort of um, living with such high consciousness, yes. so much structure and yeah. law that he treats everyone like chess pieces yeah. to be moved around. And He's even like, his own children, he yes, treats yes. as chess pieces. Very to move militaristic. Around. Yeah. Yeah. And they and explore this a lot through the show is like the uh, Cersei and uh, Jamie? Jesus Christ, Jamie. Cersei and Jamie <laughs> and Tyrion are always talking about, they're alluding to their childhood. They're alluding yeah. to how Tywin was not loving. Yes. Um, how Tywin is just sort of this iron fist that made them. You know, Jamie had to learn how to read, even though he was dyslexic. And mm. Cersei was forced to marry. Uh, well, actually, she was in love with Robert, Robert Baratheon, but um, still, she had to do things she didn't want to do. She had to take on this very like maiden role, even though she was kind of a, a genius. And yeah. Well, she wanted to marry story. Rhaegar. Right. We shouldn't get into this, Maybe, but yeah, it's <laughs> but that's in contrast to Ned. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The good father. Gentle, kind, more deeply in that arrows principle of emotionality, expression of emotions towards his children, relational dynamics, mm -hmm. cultivating a personal connection with yeah. all of them so that his death, spoiler alert, is so <laughs> devastating for every one of them. Yeah. So he... He stands as a really interesting kind of like masculine yin to Tywin being more of that like masculine yang. Yeah. Is they both are bringing that principle of the father, mm -hmm. but Ned has just this more of that kind of New Testament God. He's just all loving. Yeah. <laughs> and Tywin's a little bit of that <laughs> Old Testament Yahweh style. Yeah. Yeah. Ned rules, but he doesn't really like it. He doesn't it's really true. want to. He doesn't yeah. want to be Cain. Yeah. Because uh, he wasn't meant to be. Right. He was a second brother, which is another interesting idea, right? You know, yeah, like. True, true. He wasn't raised to to step into those principles of responsibility. He was raised to support his brother in his kingship. And then right. duty fell upon his shoulders. Right. He does He does his own dirty work. He uh, executes um, the, uh, the deserter yeah. from the night's watch. Yeah. He does it himself. Right. He says the, the person who passes the judgment should swing the sword. Yes. It's like very much like the, the person who is conscious and makes decisions should also be in touch with the embodied shadow and they should be in balance. Yeah. Um, he encourages his children. Bran is sh shooting arrows in the first episode and uh, his brothers are making fun of him. But Ned says, and like, and which one of you was a marksman at eight? He says, <laughs> keep trying, Bran. Like, you'll yeah. get it. So he's, like, very supportive right. in contrast to Tywin, who was not so supportive. Yes. And was more kind of cold. 
Yeah. So this exploration of the father principle really does stand in an interesting contrast to the mother, but really together you see how it forms this sense of wholeness of a type of dyad that works together, that principle of groundedness and the earthly matter that's met with that higher principle of the spirit, Mm. of the structuring, of the ordering. And you can look around at any of like your favorite stories, movies, novels, mythologies, and see these principles at play and kind of look beyond the veil and kind of pierce a little bit deeper into the symbology and the psychology. There's so much juicy, interesting content that really just illuminates and provides this sense of understanding of why we act the way that we do. This Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern time at the STOA, um, we are continuing our speaker series, the Shadow Play speaker series. Uh, this week is going to be Lubomir Arsoff, and he is an amazing artist. He is a illustrator, cartoonist. I'm not sure how to really describe him, but um, he created the short film In Shadow, and you can look this up on YouTube. It's pretty easy to find. Um, Anyways, uh, he's a brilliant artist. He is going to be a little bit different than what we've had so far, which I'm kind of excited about because we've had mostly intellectuals. He's a little bit more of a, he's intellectual in his own right, but he's coming from a more sort of arty um, exploration of sort of the creative creative depths in this way that is not uh, necessarily the same way that um, John Beebe, John Beebe, excuse me, might go about exploring the shadow. Um, but he will be here on March 10th, Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. It is a free event, and you can RSVP at thestoa.ca. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash goldenshadoworg. If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events, or work one-on-one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org. Thanks for listening. See you later.